Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 120, and we're going to talk about minimalism and some new thoughts on minimalism that I've acquired recently and what it might mean for you. We're also going to talk about how your sheets can impact how comfortably you sleep in hot weather, a place to visit that gives you easy access to Boston, Massachusetts, and a product review of U-Haul trailers. Stick with me on that one. Welcome back, everybody. It is crazy times here still, and I am feeling completely overwhelmed with all the stuff in my life, and it has and it has gotten me thinking about minimalism again. A lot of people are attracted to van life because of the idea of minimalism, which is living with the least amount of things or the optimal amount of things necessary. And that is not having any clutter in your life, whether it be too much stuff or too many obligations or too many thoughts or whatever. Now, way long time ago, I did a big podcast about all the different types of minimalism. So don't think that minimalism is one thing. But for me, minimalism is having enough, but not too much, with the purpose of trying to have peace of mind. And folks, I am failing at that miserably right now, because the opposite of minimalism, in a way, is opportunity. So I was doing well on the path towards a minimalist life. I mean... I am not a full-timer, so I don't have complete control over things. I I am married, very happy to be married. I will give up my van before I give up my marriage, I promise you that. And that means I kind of live a dual life. Like, there's me out on the road in the van, and then there's me at home in the condo in Chicago. For the van, it was a little bit of my escape. You know, I, I had this one place where I could control everything and have everything be exactly the way I wanted and not have too much stuff. If I'm out in my van camping, I am in a situation that I have a good level of control over and I don't have a lot of burdens of, oh, I got to do this, I got to do that, and all that kind of a thing. Well, then, as happens with a lot of people, uh, feature creep slides in, and you want more and more and more. And what happened with me was that I had built this perfectly excellent van for what I was trying to do, and then I put a lot of miles on it, and I kept wanting to do a bit more, just a bit more, just a bit more, and then I bought a new van, which was an ambulance, and then we just bought some land, and then we bought an old Winnebago to put on the land, and then, well, if you have land, you have to have a tractor, so yes, I just bought a Kubota tractor, and holy cow, I have a ton of stuff now, and my minimalist cred is gone. I can no longer be thought of as minimalist in any way these days. And I'm a little bit sad about that, but um, it, it has given me some perspective, because everything I'm doing is so I can accomplish something. And in a way, minimalism is not trying to accomplish things. It's trying to not have things to accomplish. It's a bit of a Zen state where you're just comfortable and at peace with where you are, when you are. It's a way of being present. 
But that's not where I am right now. Where I am right now is I have a whole bunch of problems that need to be solved. And I want to explain to you how I got into this trap so that you can either avoid it or perhaps embrace it because you don't have to be minimalist and there are some advantages for not being minimalist. So as you may recall, I bought the ambulance and I'm going to build it out and it's an ambulance. It's a lot of work. Don't buy an ambulance. I've told you this from day one, don't buy an ambulance unless you really want to and then buy an ambulance. And that was the situation I was in. But I moved from a house that had a little bit of a garage to a condo and that meant that I had to build out the ambulance in random parking lots on the street. And that proved to be extremely difficult in Chicago. It wasn't impossible, but it made everything take a lot more effort to get done. And one thing I ran into that was a major problem is space to store stuff. I mean, this was an ambulance, so it was completely built out, just not for the purpose I wanted it to be. So I had to remove a bunch of things like big walls and partitions. And I had all these and, and chairs and I had all these things that were useful and that I may want in the future, but I didn't have any place to put them except in the van. And you can see the problem there. So I rented a storage unit and then I put a bunch of that stuff in the storage unit. But of course, the storage unit is kind of the distance. I have to drive to get to the storage unit. And then the storage unit has an elevator and it's in the basement and it's a big pain in the butt and it's a small space. So everything's stacked in there. So if I want that tool that was in a box of tools I thought I wouldn't need that's way at the back of the storage unit, I then need to empty out the storage unit. You can see things get complicated very, very quickly. And then the thought was, oh, well, the solution to this is to get a piece of land and you can get just bits of land for a few thousand dollars, pretty much anywhere in the country, really. And the idea was I would just have this space where I could park the van and work on it without anybody bothering me. And, you know, maybe I could get a little storage shed and put stuff in there and it would actually pay for itself because I wouldn't be paying for the storage unit, which, by the way, in Chicago, storage unit prices have gone crazy. And then that would be it. And then my wife, who has largely been tolerant of my van building stuff without being excited about it, suddenly got excited about it and said, well, hey, if we're going to buy land, what if we bought a nice piece of land that we could kind of use as a vacation property? And so we did. We bought about four acres on the Illinois River. And it's a really interesting, weird piece of property with ruins on it and all kinds of crazy history and it's fun and we're very excited about that. And then we were like, well, if we're going to have this piece of land, we can actually have something on the land that's bigger than the van and we can leave it there. So why don't we look at trailers? And then we ended up with this 1972 Winnebago that was done up like a tiki shack. And we have the tiki bago, which I've talked about way too much. Okay. So now we have all this stuff, but hey, we've got four acres of land and it's on a river and rivers are dynamic and they're dynamic because they throw stuff on the shore. They make things fall down. They go up, they go down. And that means you need something to help manage the land with. And that means you need a tractor. Uh, well, at least I do. And so now I have a tractor and oh, well, tractors need maintenance. You need a place to store them. And I judge how complex my life is by my key ring. Ideally, I would like to have one key on my keychain. It would just be a key. This is the key to the things I need. I currently have 32 keys on my keychain. It 
barely fits in my pocket. I've got seven or eight keys just for the Tiki Bago. I have three for the property. I have four, I think, for my van and another four for the condo. And then I have keys for the storage unit and for some other... It's complex. It's not minimalism. And I have failed in my goal to lead a minimalist life. And I could just be sad about that, or I could take steps to rectify it, right? I could make some decisions like, hey, this land is just going to be what it is. We're going to make this land natural. We're not going to do anything to it. Whatever happens, happens. It's just a place for us to go. And the Tiki Bago, well, we're going to park it there. We're going to put it on blocks and we're not going to do any work to it. We're just going to leave it alone. And if it falls apart, that's fine. We're going to be happy with that and so on and so forth. But the opposite of minimalism is opportunity, which I said earlier. And opportunity lets you do things that minimalism doesn't. And this is not a dig at minimalism or opportunity. I think what I'm seeking here is actually balance. So now I have tons of opportunity, which means I have tons of decisions to make and I have tons more responsibility. And it's all good. This is all good stuff. This is all stuff I went after and got and had the privilege to be able to attain. And this wasn't stuff that was being thrust upon me. But the stress associated with it is the same. And I am currently fairly stressed about all that stuff. Also, because the cruise that I have planned is coming up, and a lot of things have been very difficult with this cruise due to the cruise lines trying to come back to life after the pandemic. And I'm managing 50 people. People tend to be cats, and hurting cats is a lot of work. So yeah, I'm a bit stressed out right now, and that's why I'm thinking about this stuff. But I think some of these thoughts might be useful for you as you think about what you want to do. And this is the key takeaway from this for all of me. Remember that if you choose something that gives you more opportunity, it's going to take away from your minimalism. In a very real sense, freedom is a tyranny. Freedom is a prison. It's a trap. And while that sounds totally counterintuitive, ask anybody who does any kind of art what the experience of looking at a blank canvas or a blank sheet or a blank digital audio workstation is like that is the tyranny of freedom it's only when you restrict yourself that you're able to to create things and it's only when you restrict yourself that you're able to attain this zen state of minimalism where you have the optimal amount of stuff and stuff includes responsibility so take a step back and think about what you're doing with your van life everybody's got a different van life story a lot of people are doing this just for fun a lot of people are doing this because they have to they have no other choice some people are doing it because they want to try an alternative lifestyle whatever your story is every story is valid everything you're doing is completely proper and acceptable but know what you're doing and don't trap yourself with too much opportunity or too much minimalism. Try to figure out where your balance is and then navigate that as best you can because it's never going to be perfect. Tech Talk. It's getting to be the season where everyone's going to talk about how do I get a 12-volt air conditioner in my van and all this stuff, and I'm not going to get into that right now, but I do want to address the topic of sleeping comfortably. For me, I have found that as long as it's below 80 degrees Fahrenheit, 
And I have fans, a lot of fans. I can sleep comfortably in the van. And that's kind of my limit. When I'm looking for a place to sleep, I actually check the weather reports and see how low the temperature is going to get that night, and I will change where I sleep based on that, which usually means sometimes I'll gain elevation in order to find a good place to sleep. But there's a few other little tricks that come into play here. I mean, obviously, if you like having a fan blowing on you, you can have fans. 12-volt fans are easy. They don't use that much power. That's very simple. Air conditioning, forget it. For now, just forget about it. You're not going to have air conditioning unless you're plugged in. But your sheets, your sheets really matter. So being in a van and not having access to a washing machine, a lot of people will think, I want rugged stuff. I want stuff that's going to last a long time, that can be washed very easily and won't stain easily and such. And that type of stuff tends to be uncomfortable. It tends to be, say, not cotton. (laughs) And that is bad when it's hot because you want to have your sheets be something that are absorptive. It's not just the heat that's making it uncomfortable to sleep. It's also the humidity. And humidity can apply when you're laying on something as well as the air. And if you're laying on nylon sheets or rayon sheets or even satin sheets or silk sheets they often don't absorb enough moisture to make you feel comfortable when it's hot. And this inability to absorb moisture is also what makes them easy to clean. So you can see the dilemma there. However, there are materials that you can get that will optimize your sleeping situation. And the three that come to mind are linen, which is basically cotton sheets. A high thread count cotton sheet will be very comfortable and a little bit difficult to clean. Bamboo, which is a newer thing, you can buy sheets made out of bamboo that are very similar to cotton, but a little bit more durable. And then this new stuff called tensile, that's T-E-N-C-E-L. This is a high-tech fabric, and you might think, oh, it's made out of some kind of plastic or something, but no, it's actually made out of eucalyptus. Uh, the trees, that is, and it's, it's cellulose. It's a cellulose product. Cellulose is what wood is made out of, so it's natural. It's just been highly processed, and these materials will feel cooler if you sleep on them. Now, if you sleep in a sleeping bag, you can also think about what you want the lining of the sleeping bag to be. For example, in really hot weather, I find flannel, actually, to be cooler than that shiny nylon stuff that sleeping bags are often made out of. Or, and I think this is a great tip, you can get a sleeping bag insert that is actually basically a a bag of sheet (laughs) that you put in your sleeping bag and then you sleep in that. And heck, something I have done for years that I find super easy is that I will buy a very nice, very soft, very absorptive queen size sheet and sleep on that regardless of if I'm in a hammock or on a bed or in a sleeping bag. I basically make it so that no matter what I'm sleeping on, my body is touching this queen size sheet, which is oversized for most uses. So I basically have my my sacred sheet that I can sleep on no matter what, and it will give me the maximum amount of comfort. So anyway, just some thoughts. Uh, Oh, and one last thing. There is the idea that you can take your sheets and put them in your refrigerator or your freezer all day and then take them out and sleep on them at night. And yeah, that can actually work. For about half an hour, you will feel a little bit cooler. 
But if it's a really humid environment, those colder sheets are actually going to absorb a whole lot of water right away. And you're going to kind of be sleeping damp for the rest of the night. So you can try that, but I'm not so sure it's going to work. Anyway, just some thoughts on one way that you might be able to keep cool this summer. And please do not go crazy trying to find an air conditioner for cheap for your van. There aren't any. Tails from the road. There are some experiences that you will have on the road that are individual. They can't be shared. They can't be filmed or recorded in any way. All you can do is maybe tell someone about the experience, knowing that they will never have that experience unless they experience it for themselves. One of these is the Dismalites in Dismal Canyons, which I talked about a few, maybe a dozen episodes ago, maybe two dozen episodes ago now. You can't really photograph these little glowworms, and their light is so exquisite that you really have to experience it yourself. Well, I had another moment like this while I was driving the Tiki Bago back. It was a super cold morning. I had just left Wall, South Dakota, and it had snowed overnight. I mean, that's actually why I stayed in Wall, South Dakota, because I wanted the weather to improve. And I got a fairly early start out. It was maybe 6 o'clock in the morning. And I made it to I-80, and I'm driving east. Now, if you're familiar with how things work, in the east is where the sun comes up. (laughs) That's right. You understand that, right? And I-80 is an east-west interstate, so the sun is coming up right in my face, basically. Now, this isn't much of a problem in a Winnebago because you can't see out of the windshield anyway. It has this big visor on it. It's like you're permanently wearing a baseball cap. And I had sunglasses on, so I wasn't so worried about that. And I honestly wasn't worried about anything. I was happy to be back on the road, and the Tiki Bago seemed to be running well, and I thought, ah, finally, maybe I'm over the worst of this trip, and it's going to be smooth sailing all the way back. Which it wasn't. But let's pretend that I didn't know that then, because I didn't. And as I'm driving through this wilderness area that is completely treeless, it's basically fields on both sides of me, I start to notice this phenomenon that was dazzling. So imagine this. The sun's coming up. It's just barely over the horizon. So the sky has that glow on one side. And yet behind me, it was pretty much dark. Fields on both sides. Wide open straight highway with no other vehicles. And then someone has covered those fields with millions and millions of white twinkling Christmas lights. Not in sync, all blinking individually, turning on and off maybe five times a second. And as I'm driving down the road, the entire horizon is nothing but these twinkling lights. That is the experience I had. Now, of course, nobody did this, but what did happen was that snow fell And the crystals landed on stalks of grass that were sticking up maybe a foot over these fields. And as I was moving down the road, the angle between my eyes, the ice crystals, and the sun was constantly changing. So that I was seeing little tiny reflections of the sun in each one of these stalks of grass for a millisecond as I drove down the road. And when you multiply that by the millions and millions of blades of grass that was out there, you get this incredible experience of driving through Christmas lights. 
I actually took the effort to try to take a picture and a movie of this, and it didn't come out at all. It doesn't look like anything. This was an experience that I had, that I alone had, and that I can't share with you. But it reminded me of one of the reasons we go out there, and it's to have experiences like this. It's to see these things that we are never going to see sitting on our couch, or we're never going to see at Disney World, or at the movies. We're only going to see them by getting out there and doing the things. And I did, and I'm glad for it. Product review. This is a little bit of an unusual product review, but there's kind of a bargain to be had out there, and it's from U-Haul, of all places. I mentioned that I bought a tractor, and I do not have a trailer, so I needed a way to move the tractor from Monroe, Wisconsin, to LaSalle, Illinois. And I thought, well, I'll just get a trailer from U-Haul. And I did. And uh, it was an amazing thing. It was I got a bigger one than I had to, and it was $35. So I had this trailer all day long. It's a you know a very nice trailer, a very heavy-duty trailer. It had built-in surge brakes, which don't require any wiring. Surge brakes just work. Basically, when there is pressure on the hitch and the trailer tongue, hydraulic pressure is applied to brakes in the trailer, and it's all automatic. You don't have to do anything. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good system. And it had this really heavy-duty ramp, and I was able to drive the tractor on there, tie it down, and then simply drive to LaSalle, Illinois. 35 bucks. That got me thinking about how U-Haul trailers could be a real resource. So, obviously, you can move things with them. So, like, let's say you bought an air conditioner for your roof of your van that you're only going to try to use when you're plugged in, or that you've spent $5,000 on batteries so that you can use it, or you bought a generator or whatever. <laughs> I have this little pet peeve with air conditioners today, apparently. But where are you going to put it? I mean, your van is nicely built out. You don't want to have this big crate in there. Y you could just rent a trailer. And you don't have to get a giant one like I did. You can get trailers for 20 bucks. So for 20 bucks, you can pick this thing up and haul it wherever you want. And boy, that's a pretty good deal. And then I had the thought, well, I'm talking about open trailers here. What about the enclosed trailers? Let's say that you're going to some weekend event and you just need more space, but for whatever reason you don't want to set up a tent, well, rent a U-Haul trailer. I mean, heck, one of those six-foot-long U-Haul trailers could probably sleep four people. You could turn it into a no-build right there on the spot. Or, or let's say you don't have a van at all, you're just dreaming, but you'd like to get out there and hit the road. Try it out with a U-Haul trailer. Just get one of those 6x8 trailers that's enclosed. Make sure that you have a way to close the door without it locking on you, which you can figure out. And you can do a no-build in an afternoon, and for, you know, something like 20 30 40 bucks a day, you can live the life and see if you like it. Just another arrow for your quiver of ideas, but it really isn't that expensive to rent things from U-Haul. Their equipment is pretty good, and it does vary from place to place. I happen to find a good place here in Morton Grove, Illinois. But uh, yeah, I think I will be doing this again. A place to visit. So Boston is old as far as U.S. cities go. I mean, there are roads in Boston that were started 
in the 1630s and you know they were before that quote unquote Indian trails and before that were deer paths and for folks who come from the west and come to Boston they're completely mystified by how anybody finds their way around because there is no hint of a grid system it at all. If you want to make yourself a map of Boston, pick up a handful of spaghetti and throw it on a plate, and that's going to be pretty close. That said, that makes Boston uh, a difficult place to travel in vans, and it is a difficult place to find places to park. So, there are two approaches to getting to Boston by van. One is to park at one of the train stations on the outskirts. There's uh, the, the last station on the Green Line, south of 495 is probably the best place to park. You can park the van there overnight and take the train into town and, you know, we could probably sleep there and that wouldn't be too much of a problem. But if you want a nice place to park your van that doesn't cost very much money, Harold Parker State Forest is in North Andover, Massachusetts. And if you look at a map, this is significantly north of Boston, but it's still within striking range. You can easily drive from Harold Parker to a train station and take the train into Boston. Or if you're brave, just drive right into Boston and find parking there, although it won't be inexpensive. I learned how to drive in Boston, so it doesn't scare me too much, but parking scares me. It, it can be very difficult. And what you get with Harold Parker State Forest is, it's a forest. It's a nice forest. It's an old forest, and it seems completely distant from the big city and hubbub of Boston. There's 35 miles of trails, 11 ponds, dozens and dozens of campsites, and it's just a really nice spot. Now, these are fairly primitive campsites. You're not going to find power here. It's good for somebody who's boondocking. There are dishwashing stations and toilets and things like that, but you're not going to be plugging anything in. But you will have a very, very large campsite under the trees that you can set up and enjoy nature and go to Boston and do all the Boston stuff during the day. I've done this many, many times. In fact, many of my first camping experiences were at Harold Parker since I grew up in Salem, Mass., which isn't that far away. Now, the pricing has gone up as the popularity has gone up, sadly. And from May 15th through November, it'll cost a non-Massachusetts resident 20 bucks just to park there. It's Boston we're talking about here. You're looking at maybe 300 bucks a night for a hotel, and stealth camping options are pretty limited. Remember, this is in the land of, of no BLM land at all. So, if you are going to go to Boston, I do highly recommend this as being your, your stop here. And you may want to spend a day just at the park. I mean, there's hiking, camping, canoeing, kayaking, fishing, hunting, horseback riding, mountain biking, regular biking, ice skating, probably not in the summer cross-country skiing again probably not in the summer educational programs non-motorized boating swimming it, it's just kind of a fun place and it's a great place if you're gonna have a family gathering they've got pavilions you can rent and stuff and they have showers they have a dump station they have a playground and they have accessible trails like if you're somebody with mobility problems and you're in a wheelchair they have trails for you so if you're a massachusetts resident this can be a super affordable place because your camping costs are only $17 a night. But if you're from out of state, it's $54 a night, which I'm afraid you will find compares favorably with 
the very limited camping options in the area. In fact, I think a lot of people actually will go north to New Hampshire, New Hampshire, to find camping in order to go to Boston. This will save you a lot of driving. One caveat, they have a no alcohol policy at this campground, as many state parks do. But hey, what happens in your van stays in your van. So I'll have a link in the show notes. That's Harold Parker State Forest. A great place to set up camp if you'd like to visit Boston, Massachusetts. Resource recommendation. I like plants. (laughs) I like to have plants in my van and... I'm not all that good with plants, even though I spent years working in a greenhouse. I'm much better at killing the plants than keeping them alive. So I need help when figuring out what plants to have in the van. Now, in my NV200, I had fake plants and a vase. So I would pick some local flowers or whatever and put those in the vase, and then the fake plants would kind of round things out. In the ambulance, I'm actually going to try to have live plants. And I found a resource for how to take care of plants in your van and what plants are good for vans. Now, there's hundreds and hundreds of these. This is just one, and I I think it's a good resource. And it's from themotorizedhome.com. The name of the article is The Best Houseplants for Your Rolling Home. And it's exactly what it sounds like. There's a list of plants that survive the wide range of temperatures and differing light that you're going to have in a van. And it's also a bunch of suggestions on how to prevent your plants from flying off the dashboard and hitting you in the face, which is a thing that can happen. It also talks about how your first plants that you grow in your van should probably be herbs. That is, plants that are meant to be picked and used in cooking. I mean, everything in a van has to have two uses, right? Why not have your plants also be a source of condiments? (laughs) I like it. I think everybody should try to grow plants in their van, and everyone should realize that it is tricky. Uh, You may have dead plants and you just have to be okay with that. And if you're really, really not good with plants, you can always go with a cactus because even when they're dead, they look the same. (laughs) So I'll have a link in the show notes to this link from the motorizedhome.com, but I hope it gives you some ideas on how to have plants in your home that happens to have wheels. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 120. I'm very grateful that you tune in each week, and I absolutely appreciate each and every one of you. If you need to get a hold of me, I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's built to go, two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Will Rogers. In 1879, he said this. Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. <laughs>